Be confident. Be bold. Be authentic. But don't forget to take action. This is Ordinary to Badass, where our stories empower women to step into the spotlight of their own lives and pursue what they're truly passionate about. It's time to step into the arena and become more than just extraordinary. It's time to become a badass with your host, Marie Sonneman. Welcome to Ordinary to Badass, episode number 92. In this episode, you will hear from Caroline DePilatus. Caroline is the co-owner of Your Global Family. She also wrote a book called Jumping Out of the Mainstream. It's an American family's year in China. In this episode, we'll talk about loss during the coronavirus, living overseas, and how to raise globally-minded children. I know that you're going to love this episode, so definitely stay tuned. But before we get there, have you joined the Ordinary to Badass Facebook group yet? In the O2B Facebook group, well, it's Ordinary to Badass Facebook group, but if you don't know, if you're not aware, I shorten it and call it O2B sometimes. Um, but in that group, sometimes we do a deeper dive into the conversations that you hear here on the podcast. And yeah, so if you want to further the conversation or talk more about something that you heard in one of these episodes, I would love, love, love for you to join the Ordinary to Badass Facebook group today. And of course, if you like these episodes, feel free to share it with a friend or head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review um, or a rating and a review saying how you liked the episode. I would be so grateful and then just screenshot it, send it to me on Instagram at Ordinary to Badass. The main goal is to get badasses just like you or to get the podcast into the hands of badasses just like you. All right. With that, let's hear from Caroline. Welcome to Ordinary to Badass. Whether you're ordinary or badass, I'm glad you're here. Today's guest is Caroline DePilatus. Caroline, thank you so much for being here. Excited to have you on the show. Marie, thank you so much for having me. So before we go any further, I've got to ask you, do you consider yourself ordinary or badass? Oh, I'm definitely an evolving badass. <laughs> <laughs> so I do consider myself a badass, but... Um, I think it's been a process of evolution for sure, for sure. So was there a turning point where you started to feel more badass? Yes, I, well, I think in the last 10 years, I've, I feel like I've been becoming more of who I really am. And so as that process begun and has been unfolding, I feel like I'm becoming more of a badass. So what's something badass that you've done? <laughs> well, I can tell you two things that are top of mind that I did today that were kind of badass. <laughs> okay, the first one is uh, I went on a 25 mile bike ride. I cycle a lot and that's not necessarily the badass thing I did, but 
when I, I had a choice of a route that I could go and I chose, I, I literally went down this road and I could either go right, which would have been the easier route overall. Okay. It still would have yielded, you know, 25, between 25 and 30 miles. Uh, or I could have turned left. And when I, I got to that place, I turned left. So I went on this ride that initially has quite a lot of hills. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, challenging. But the reason I was a little scared to do this, first of all, it was 7.15 a.m. And it was about 45 degrees. And I, <laughs> I keep on hearing the voice of a friend of mine who's 71 years old and is an amazing cyclist, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> she, uh, she said, there's never bad weather. There's only bad clothing. And so I had four layers on. And I'll tell you, it was cold enough for the entire ride, which was about two hours, a little under two hours, for me never to take off a layer. That's how cold it was. But my core was really, really warm. My fingers and my toes got a little bit cold, I'll admit. But anyway, the reason why I feel like it was a badass thing to do is because there were two pretty significant downhill parts. One that I was feeling really intimidated by, not because I haven't gone down it before. I have actually, uh, I, and I have on the, the road bike that I have now, which has pretty thin tires, but this is the first time I did it with clip-in shoes. And I've used clip-ins on flat areas quite a bit now. And I've also used them on my you know, stationary spin bike but I hadn't gone that down that hill with the clip-ins. And for some reason, I just felt, it was a mind thing really, mm -hmm. because as my husband pointed out, it's not any different than really going down with just regular tennis shoes on. But because when you're clipped in, you cannot jump out. If I had a wipeout, it would have been pretty, I wouldn't have been on this, <laughs> this interview today, <laughs> but I did it. And I did it in like 45 to 47 degree weather and I made it and I had this great ride and I just, I felt a badass because I <laughs> overcame a fear that yeah. was there. And so I can do it again now. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is kind of smaller, but um, shortly before we got on, I was at Costco and I was thinking, okay, I got to make it back in time. I got to make it back in time to, to be on this um, on this podcast and I bring my stuff, my stuff out to my car. <laughs> I have my bike in my car, by the way. So, you know, it was, it was pretty crowded putting things in there. And then I brought the cart over to that cart place, you know, and I was putting it in the cart holder area, but the cart kept on falling, coming out. Mm -hmm. And so I started walking back over to my car and I realized that was happening. So I turned around suddenly and I went to go rescue the cart and get in there firmly. <laughs> but some guy was driving along. He was going pretty fast to the parking lot and he got really pissed off at me for doing that. Like he kind of, you know, flipped me off and everything. Okay. Yeah. I had a moment there where I was like pretty <laughs> pissed off at him. I didn't say anything, but I was like, <clears throat> But then as I walked to my car, there was a woman sitting in the car next to me and you know, she was parked with her tail in so she could see the whole thing. And she said, you know, 
you did the right thing. She said, you know, I saw you, you kept the cart from going and becoming a problem for somebody else. Good for you. And I say, so I was really, you know, thankful that she saw that and I and said something and I said that to her, but you know, one, one definition for me of a badass, I mean, usually we think of people that are like risking something or doing something that's hard for them and overcoming a difficulty. But I also think a badass is the person who does what is right for others, you know, and thinks about the other person and tries to find ways to make the other person um, feel valued and cared for. And I know we've all been in parking lots where <laughs> people haven't taken care of carts and like we can't get into the slot and everything. And so that was just kind of important to me. So yeah, those are yeah. two things, small things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, it's important to do the right thing and nobody has to be watching, you know, but to just do the right, right thing. And I think that becomes more of a mindset um, for like when you do the small things and you'll do it with the big things too. Yes. I agree with you on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so those are a couple things. Yeah. Let's go back for a second to um, when you were riding your bike and your shoes were clipped in what is it that you said to yourself, like before you ever got to that point, you knew, if I understand correctly, you knew that that was coming, that drop or that mm -hmm. hill was coming. Um, so it would be easy to stop or like freak out or turn around. What were you saying to yourself when you were like feeling fearful? Hmm. Uh, well, I'll be honest. I lifted up a quick little prayer. I said, okay, God, this is it. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, you know, I can do this. I've been down this before. Uh, you can't, you have breaks, just, you know, use them judiciously. You know, there's, a, there's also a problem when you're, when you're doing, uh, when you're going downhill like that, if you put your back brake on too strongly, or you put your front brake on too strongly, you can, it, you have to do it really evenly. Otherwise, it, it, it kind of, you know, you could, you could seriously flip yourself or you could, um, I mean, just create a lot of tension on the back wheel and everything. And I'm, you know, I've, I've ridden bikes all my life, but really in the last few years, I've gotten into them more. So, so, you know, I just wanted to really, um, I just focused a lot, like what, you know, some, one of the things I use for just life in general is asking myself ahead of time, what do you want out of this experience? And I told myself I wanted success. I, to <laughs> me, success was not necessarily having the fastest ride ever. I did not have that fast of a ride because quite frankly, it was so cold that for parts of the ride, my legs felt kind of like lead it would be very different if I had done that same ride, maybe in the middle of the day or something like that, but I wanted to do it in the morning. And uh, so I, I could allow myself not to have the perfect ride, but instead, you know, know that I had done it all the way through and that I enjoyed it and that it energized me and that, you know, I could live to say something about it. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there's so much stuff that I love about that story just because um, 
one, you're cold and it was scary. Like you're facing a fear as you're doing it. So it could be easy to just back out or say, oh, not today. Or, oh, I'll do it, you know, later um, right. and then risk never doing it. And then right. the other thing is how you were just a cheerleader for yourself. Like you kind of just pump mm. yourself up in your head. And I think that sometimes we forget to do that. And so I love that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, that's, that's what we need to do. <laughs> <yep>. <laughs> Caroline, will you tell us a little bit about yourself so we can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. Sure. Thanks. Um, so, yeah. So first of all, um, I want you to know that I am in my fifties and as I was explaining to Marie earlier, I like to say my mid fifties, although the mids are getting wider and wider and wider. Uh, I just celebrated my 58th birthday in January. Sometimes I feel like that's a little, you know, I mean, occasionally when I get going a little bit negative, I can think to myself, that's a handicap. But to be honest, my 50s have been really awesome. I feel like I've had kind of a new breath of life in my 50s. And uh, it's combined physically. I'm in some of the best shape I've been in my life, except for maybe, maybe when I was in college. I was in good, good shape then, but, you know, it was a whole different ballgame. And, uh, you know, I'm, I feel like a lot of my relationships have uh matured in such a way that there's kind of a quiet confidence in them and so anyway uh you know just wanted to kind of put that in perspective i am married to a man who's an educator he's a high school teacher and we have been married for 35 years so i gave away my age and i got married just before my 23rd birthday and honestly that shocked me I never expected to get married that young. Uh, no plans for that. Was not looking for a man. Was not, never fantasized about the home and children or anything like that. In fact, I didn't really know if I wanted to have children, but I'm glad I did. I have three kids. They are 25, 23, and, and uh, 20. Uh, the oldest is married, lives with uh, his wife in Ireland right now. They just got master's degrees and they're kind of uh, in, in a little bit of transition and everything, but how fun. Yeah. Yeah. And my daughter, well, she'll actually be 24 in March, but my daughter, who's the second one is engaged and is getting married in June. And um She's getting married to an international student from Kenya. So we're actually very excited about that. I can explain a little bit more why. <laughs> my, my youngest is 20. He's a junior in college at Loyola Marymount in LA. He's studying film. And of course, because of COVID, he's been back with us since March of last year of 2020. But uh, he's kind of my... He, he, first of all, he's the largest of my three kids and he's kind of my big teddy bear and also my baby. He's very affectionate and uh, it's nice to have him around, although he leaves parts of himself all over the house, which is, you know, <laughs> something we had to get used to. So in a way we were kind of empty nesters, but COVID changed all that. Uh, new empty nesters, but COVID changed all that and changed a lot of our plans with but, uh, you know, picking up the pieces on that. 
So for most of my marriage, um, after I got a graduate degree in, believe it or not, so my undergrad is in um, international relations from Stanford. And my graduate degree is in translation and interpretation of Japanese and English from what is now called the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, it used to be called Monterey Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California. And that's where I live now. Never expected that we would remain in Monterey, but it's been a good place for us in so many ways, despite the high cost of housing. Um, and so uh, I worked as a translator and interpreter. I mean, I had several jobs before I got my, my, second, my master's degree, but I worked as a translator and interpreter for about three, four, five years. Uh, during which time we started a family and I kind of came to realize that that work was very difficult because it was super deadline driven and anyone who's had babies comes to realize very quickly babies are the last thing that are deadline driven <laughs> they want and they want attention and time and um and now <laughs> and I felt yes the now and everything and so in those early years I felt the pressure of deadlines combined with uh, babies that needed to be, you know, cared for and, and everything. So I had an opportunity. We, my husband and I got involved with this volunteer organization called International Students and um, had an opportunity to actually go on staff with this organization and decided to do that. This is a, it's a Christian friendship organization is how you would describe it, but um, it's, national really international but it's got local groups and so there was some activity here in our area we have several schools even though we're not a really large area um, we have about four or five schools that have international students some of the military uh, or international instructors um, at at the defense language institute which teaches americans you know other languages American military. So um, we are kind of an extension of the Bay Area, but far enough away that it feels very different because we're on the coast. So anyway, um, we got involved in that as volunteers. And then we, um, I went through the training and went on staff and um, worked with that organization, mostly part-time as I was raising my kids for 25 years different roles, different capacities, including a little stint abroad. But uh, in February of last year, it marked 25 years and I deliberately brought that time to an end for a number of different reasons. And it was, on one hand, it was ill-timed because of course we went into the pandemic in March and all of a sudden financially it meant a certain amount of money less per um, per month. And that was felt like it was gonna be a shock. We had actually prepared both of our empty rooms um, and uh, adjacent bathroom for doing Airbnb, which we can do in the place where we live. And we were about 75% of the way there to get those out and get those posted and start that was more of a bridge idea for us, you know, to sort of make up some of the income and, but that 
didn't happen because of COVID. And uh, I know there are Airbnbs operating now, of course, but we just didn't have the experience to be able to do that. So we, you know, we just weren't ready to jump into that. And then uh, about a month after we got the COVID restrictions in place, my dad went into the hospital, into the ER, and I'll spare you the details. I'm sure you know, Marie, but I'll spare the audience the details. But what I will say is he had a two and a half month journey, not from COVID, by the way, but you know, just numerous other health stuff, but all under COVID conditions, which were really tough, particularly for my mom, but also for me and my sister, who lives in New York. And then he passed away on July 1st last year on their 59th anniversary. And that's a whole other story. Yeah, that's pretty, tough. pretty intense. So, you know, he was elderly. So it's not surprising, you know, he had a pretty good long life. But I've come to realize, and this is my first experience. I mean, I've had grandparents who've passed away, aunts and uncles, of course, a couple cousins and friends and my mother and father-in-law so I've lost people in my life but this was the first like immediate person parent and you know I feel I mean I'm sure some of your listeners have lost parents but I feel like it's almost like half of my half of the ground under me kind of just dropped (laughs) and I just felt like I was you know kind of in hanging in midair or something. Mm -hmm. And it's been, you know, 2020 has been a year of coming to terms with a lot of loss. Uh, The job that I had that I realized kind of formed, even though I didn't expect it to form my identity, when it wasn't there, I suddenly realized, wow, so much of my identity was wrapped up in that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, losing my dad, my mom has cognitive issues that are concerning and we have to give more attention to that. So there were those things against the backdrop of COVID, against all the political mess. And um, for me actually, and I hope this is okay to talk about, I come from a, what would be considered an evangelical Christian, I wouldn't say background because I was raised Catholic, but I kind of gave that up. And I had been in what I didn't realize was called the evangelical Christian church. And I am white. And so we know white evangelicalism is getting a lot of attention these days. And um, never, ever had really uh, considered some of the things that are getting attention now. Um, Most of my experience was not that. But, you know, with all the stuff with the race relations and kind of I, about, about six or seven years ago, I started kind of, <laughs> I guess some would, requ- would describe it as being woke or whatever. I started kind of paying more attention to that dynamic. And so the last, mm, the last year in particular, but few years have been kind of an awakening to a lot of things And it has caused a huge shift in my perceptions and my understandings and what I believe. And I'm I'm actually still in process sorting a lot of that out. But so, so, you know, it's a number of things happening all at once. And I was thinking about February, which is when we're recording this. I don't know 
when you will when you will play this but I was thinking about February today and I was thinking to myself February 2021 this is the first month I feel like wow I'm back on my feet I'm actually functioning like kind of like a normal human being again so I know I know Marie you have been through uh you know some challenges some loss yourself and yeah it's it's a big deal it's a big yeah change of you. and I mean it kind of felt like when COVID hit it felt like for a bunch of people I'm sure like there's this pandemic like everything else should stop like there shouldn't yeah. be any other like life crises you know <laughs> right <laughs> right exactly <laughs> no it doesn't real life and you know that's really interesting to think about for like for example people who have cancer you know um, even though I, we have a number of friends, in fact, we lost two very close friends to cancer last year, one in February. So it was kind of before all the pandemic stuff sort of went into gear. And she was just in her forties, single mom of two teenage boys in her forties. And, uh, we lost her. And then we lost another friend of ours who's a guy in his fifties um, you know, in, in, uh, March. And so it was, that too was a big, you know, wow. <laughs> I mean, and both of those were cancer deaths. So, yeah. 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 So what I appreciate, and I think it's pretty badass is that you're constantly examining your beliefs mm. and like, is this what I believe or willing to adjust if you learn something different? Because <clears throat> I don't, I mean, I think that's what helps us grow is when we're willing to actually look at our beliefs and what we've thought all along. Yes. Yes. I, I feel so too. And I think I've always kind of been open-minded that way, but I guess I never saw certain things that are coming out now that have kind of shocked me, but you know, I just want to say bottom line for me is this uh, <laughs> in the Bible, there are two that what's considered the two greatest commandments are love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. After that, all that other stuff is not really that important. So, you know, we have to kind of sort of examine what does that mean to, to carry out those two things. And second, the other way I think I've really changed is Okay, so, you know, for whatever you would give to like personality inventories, I think my basic personality inventory for Myers-Briggs is ENTJ, or no, I'm sorry, ENFJ. But I think I've also kind of moved in the direction of an INFJ. And so... I'm much, I'm more introverted now than I used to be. And I don't consider that a bad thing at all. In fact, I consider it a good thing. I, maybe ambivert or whatever, but the J, it stands for judgment. And as opposed to P, which is more perceiving and everything. And, you know, I think what I really, really, a major thing that's happened to me is basically saying, there is no one whose backstory I know 
other than myself. I mean, I kind of know my husband's backstory. I kind of know my kids' backstories, although those are changing too, because they're Mm -hmm. young adults now. I kind of know my sister's backstory, but not the whole part. But outside of those people, like I really don't know anybody's backstory completely. So I have no place to judge. And, you know, there's a very fine line between observing and judging, but it's there and we can be observers, you know, like, you know, the classic thing when you see the young mom in the line and the kids acting like a snot, you know, in the grocery line, the kids acting like a snot and the mother just responds in anger, how it's so easy for us to just jump to a conclusion about who that woman is. Um, learning to, to reserve judgment and just kind of watching, but not going there to the thought of, well, that person must be that way. I think it's really, really important. And so I guess I, I really feel freed up in that sense because I know that I can only judge myself and, you know, hopefully learning to judge myself kindly, but I, the only backstory I know is my own. Right. So what comes to mind to me is like, what keeps you learning and growing? And then you had told me a story about a friend from Singapore. Oh, you want to tell me about that? Sure. Sure. That's a good, yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll illustrate, I'll, I'll illustrate the answer to what you just asked by telling this story. That's good. So like I said, uh, I'm in my fifties, uh, 58, my husband is 60 and wow. I mean, okay. He has white hair. So he does the kids, our kids always joke about how he was, you know, they'll say things like, so dad, what was it like when the dinosaurs were walking the earth and everything? (laughs) They've always given him a hard time. Um, this is my real hair color. So, you know, um, I'm jealous. My mom, (laughs) my mom, uh, and that it's, I, I do put some highlights in there. So, but, but it's, it's, you know, the color that you see right there is, Mm -hmm. um, sort of like a dark brownish color, but my mom who's 83 barely has, I mean, she really doesn't have any gray. So I'm hoping I got her jeans. We'll see. But anyway, point being that, um, you know, I, I don't think we look like we're that old, <laughs> um, but, but anyway, some years ago, we had these Singaporean friends who the, the husband was military and they were, he was doing a degree in our area and we had him over for dinner and we're just casually sitting around. These friends are in their thirties, young thirties, actually. And the guy turned to my husband and said, I have a question to ask you. I think my husband was probably maybe like 54 or five at the time. And he said, you know, you guys say you want to do a bunch of other things and you've got ideas for travel and creating an, uh, you know, business and some other things. And why do you want to do that? Back in my country, 
said, when people get to be your age, they just kind of want to retire and kind of live the good life. And, you know, they get grandkids, play with the grandkids, take care of the grandkids for, for their, their kids that are out working and et cetera. Why do you want to do more? And my husband's response, and I echo this, was, you know, we believe that there's opportunities throughout life. And uh, we kind of believe more in refirement instead of retirement. And so, <laughs> and so I feel like we are in a place where we are being refired to do things. My husband's still teaching high school and probably will be for another three to five years. Um, but we are looking at what the next stages are. Um, some of that is dependent upon, you know, what happens with my mom, because uh, we have a definite role there. And of course, you know, we don't want to be absent for grandkids if and when we get them, but mm -hmm. we don't necessarily need to be like taking care of them 24 seven. And that becomes our total identity either. We can have other things going on. And we do have some ideas about what the future may hold. And we're just kind of watching and thinking and hoping and praying. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. But, but I mean, I feel like unless, I mean, no matter that you should live into what you're given. So if you, you know, like, let's say you have a severe handicap. I'm thinking of, I can't remember the name of this guy, but um, maybe you do, Marie. Um, he's a blogger. He's very well known. And um, he's basically paralyzed. John, I think is his Milligan, first. Milligan, maybe? No, not Milligan. That's Brandon Milligan. Yeah, I had some contact with him. You know, maybe I was on his, his newsletter list a long, long time ago, but I, yeah. I probably was one of those people that didn't open it enough. So <laughs> anyway, um, but, you know, he's an example of somebody who I think he's paralyzed from the neck down, but he's done really well. And, you know, we, we know many, Christopher Reeve, we know many stories of people who've had handicaps, not just physical, but also mental, emotional and so forth and have leaned into those things to bring about, you know, to basically be badasses, you know, right, right? right? And I feel like until you are absolutely, completely unable, you're so sidelined that really the thing that you need to do is get capture your last breath. <laughs> I feel like we should be useful here on this planet. And 100%. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that that's so important to keep, you know, striving for things or doing for doing things that light you up because it's like, you're either too young or too old, or there's always an excuse, no matter what part of life you're in, you know, there's always an excuse as to why we can't do things. Um, so, so why true. not do it now if you're capable? Absolutely. Absolutely. And a friend of mine, actually, one thing I did not explain, well, I guess I did talk about how um, we worked with international students for a long time. International students, scholars, um, uh, wives, couples, and families at different stages. And really, you know, quite frankly, um, I left when things were thriving. 
And then of course COVID came, it's, you know, it sort of changed the landscape, but I did not leave like a thing that was failing. It was actually really thriving, but I stepped out of it because I made a commitment to myself for the next stage, which is, would you like me to just say about your global family? Mm -hmm. So I got, so, so we have a goal, my husband and I, to help, especially help parents, but help people become more globally minded and uh, more focused on the world in a way that's integrative and that helps them understand that people are people are people <laughs> and helps them to cross cultures and connect with people in um, other places of the world and basically bringing, bringing people together. That's some, something that we've always done, I've always done and so on. And we wanna help people to travel better. We wanna help people to live abroad better. We wanna um, be able to help people while they're raising their kids, say here in the US or wherever to um, gain tools and skills uh, working with their kids as they raise them to sort of give them more of a global perspective. And the reason why we think this is so critical, it, especially in the U.S., I should say. And especially because, now in these times. <laughs> yes, because we, every country, people in every country to some extent are very ethnocentric. I mean, it's very easy to think that this is the way life is done, but this is not the only way life is done. This is the way I mean, you know, when you talk about the word culture, um, it's a really loaded term because it can mean so many different things. And, you know, on a very microscopic level, of course, we know, you know, culture to Petri dish, but, but on a, when, we, when we talk about culture as sort of the milieu of what people are living in, I mean, my culture that I grew up in, in my home was different from my husband's culture. So it's two cultures together. However, we share, because we're both American, we share a lot of common culture in our upbringing, you know, pop tunes and, you know, commercials and all those kind of things, certain holidays and whatever. But, you know, I, I think it's uh, f- for 25 years, I have interacted with, helped, cared for, befriended and been befriended by internationals from countries all over the world, rich countries, poor countries, everything in between, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, you know, Jews, Christians, atheists, agnostics, the whole gamut I've had contact with. And, uh, you know, have just really have a lot of rich contacts. And we feel, my husband and I feel that we want to use those experiences that we've had to help others understand. You know, for example, we have a ton of friends in Pakistan. We really hope someday we can go to Pakistan but we may not, it's very hard for Americans that are not military to get into Pakistan for a number of security reasons, which you can imagine. But we can stay in touch with those friends and we do. And 
there's many things we've learned from Pakistan, Pakistani friends. I mean, that's a majority Muslim culture, 98, 99% Muslim. Not all are practicing. There's a lot of nominal Muslim Pakistanis, but I'm just amazed at the hospitality, the love that I have received from those Pakistani friends. That, that culture particularly stand, stood out. Yeah. Have you ever been there? No, no. So how did you meet people from Pakistan? Well, like I said, we live in an area with several schools that um, you know have international students. And so uh, the Pakistanis in particular um, we're coming through what's called the uh, Naval Postgraduate School. So these were educated Pakistanis that were getting master's degrees. Usually the husband was getting the degree. Occasionally the wife was. Um, you know, they'd come as families. And what happened really was this, the countries that were represented at that particular school were ones that were U.S. allies. So for much of the time post 9-11, Pakistan was, you know, it, it's a U.S. ally, but there's issues. <laughs> Let's put it that right. way. That changed under the Trump years because Trump cozied up more to Modi and, you know, India. And so that makeup, I mean, I remember actually when the we could tell that the number of Pakistanis were declining. Um, so... I mean, I have a number of Pakistani friends, a ton of Turkish friends. And I'll give you a really interesting example of what happened with that when Turkey became a pretty clearly authoritarian state uh, within a period of about six months, there was a coup in Turkey. It's still debated. Some say that it was a fabricated coup, but there was a coup. And Erdogan, who's the president of, of Turkey, basically called all Turkish officers back to Turkey. And most of them were NATO designated officers. They were all around the country at different schools and everything. But we had a pretty, like we had at one point, we had like 25 Turkish families in our area. And it was a very intense time because quite frankly, if they went back to Turkey, they, in many cases, they would risk their lives. And so it was a, a fraught period. We worked with a lot of those, those families and befriended a lot of those families, found some legal, you know, uh, um, assistance for some of them and so on. Half the group ended up staying in the US and basically they lost, they were stripped of their Turkish citizenship. And, you know, they've got asylum status. And I mean, these are like really smart people. And um, half of them went back. And the ones of the ones that went back, it's a little curious to know what's happening. You can see they all, most of them completely left Facebook. They went to Instagram, which was less patrolled. Mm. Um, so you still have some of these contacts, but it's harder to keep track of them compared to the ones that are in the U.S. So, right, right. yeah. So how can parents and specifically moms, because that's what a majority mm -hmm. of ordinary to badass listeners are women, um, sure. how can they raise more globally minded children? Mm, mm. Well, okay. So 
in a non-pandemic world, <laughs> I give you a ton of <laughs> ideas. Um, I will say that uh, one of the um, eBooks that I put together was 15 ways to raise a global citizen. And it goes from everything, everything from just, you know, the books you choose to bring into your home, you know, um, you can be very strategic in library books that you choose or books that you purchase uh, for your kids to read, um, depending on the ages of your kids, of course to getting involved, for example, like in a literacy program where you know you are the one that's helping someone learn, but your child is right there alongside you watching you, to getting involved in um, different kinds of, like, I mean, it, where we live, we live close to agricultural communities. So um, we've got a lot of Latinos in our area. So, you know, learning another language, learning Spanish is obviously very, very key. If there's an international uh, school in the area to prioritize that. Um, so those are some of the obvious ones, but then there's all sorts of things like there's so an increasing number of materials online. Like there's this one program. I haven't done it because my kids are, too old for this, of course, but, but uh, there's a little a program called Little Global Citizens. So, you know, it's a monthly box. And, mm -hmm. You know, um, personally, I think that there are ways that are probably less expensive that you can experience another culture. Like if you say, okay, it's February and we're gonna focus on France with your kids. Even if your kids are, you know, I'm, I'm saying up until maybe late elementary, you can probably do this. Um, maybe even into middle school, depending upon the temperament of the child and everything. But, you know, everything, everything we're doing this month, is going to be about France, we're going to eat French food, we're going to learn how to cook stuff, we're going to learn as much as we possibly can about France, because next summer, we're going to go there. And we're, you know, and we're going to learn some words and this and that. And, and, um, you know, even maybe develop a pen pal with a French person, you know, so you can, you can do things like that. Um, you know, our kids, because we were involved in this international student outreach, we had people from all over the world that were in our home. Um, they'd be in our home for different kinds of events, but they'd also be in our home for like, we did some like temporary housing and stuff. Um, and so they, they got to meet people from all over the world. We go on outings, you know, hiking trips and, and even like, even like ski trips and snow trips and things like that with them. So our kids were really exposed to people from all over the world. And, you know, there are opportunities like that too. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. Those are great tips. Um, <laughs> I think just even generating a little bit of excitement for your kids, you know, like you talked about for the month of you know learning mm -hmm. things French like I think it's important to generate some excitement and keep them interested yeah especially if you can give them a goal like you know when it comes to like language learning or learning about a culture it really 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 helps if they can connect it with a real person or real people yeah so you know um it doesn't it doesn't really help if you're learning French and then there's not going to be a step further, 
you know, right. um, and, you know, you can also take languages like Polish or more difficult languages and just help your kids master a few words, a few phrases and everything. Now this changes when kids get into middle school and high school, because number one, school can be more demanding of them. But two, their attitudes change in terms of, you know, how much do they want to be with you? How much do they want your influence and everything? So those, you know, younger years up through early elementary, I think are the most early, actually mid to late elementary are the most influential. But, you know, there's, there's whether it, it's like going to a restaurant, you know, a restaurant, um, an Indian food restaurant, for example, if that's the culture you want to kind of focus on a little bit more, eating the food, talking with your server about it, you know, um, maybe following up and trying to create one of the recipes that you ate. I mean, there's so many things that the kitchen is a great place. There's a great website. Um, oh, I can't remember the name right now. I've got so many bookmarked, but there's a gal who- You can send me the link too. And okay. I can just put it in the show notes, but keep going. Yeah, I think I could probably find this, but but it's a, it's a website where she basically cooked food from all over the world and kind of had her daughter as the, the taste- tester you know <laughs> her daughter would you know would um give her impressions and she'd write a blog post based upon what her daughter's feelings and thoughts were about the food and everything right. so um there's there's all sorts of ways you can bring other cultures into your life and create just a very curious approach to living right yeah absolutely mm -hmm. i think that's important Mm -hmm. So I know we're winding down here, but I don't mm -hmm. want to end this interview without talking about or having you talk about your book, Jumping Out of the Mainstream. Oh, I'm um, so glad you <laughs> have it there because I, I, I realized earlier, I thought, oh my goodness, I should have one to show you. But yeah, thank nope, you. I have it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Sure, sure. So this book I wrote in 2016 and 2017. And um, it really is the story of our family uh, taking a year abroad and we lived in China. And, you know, nowadays, I mean, again, pandemic aside, nowadays that might not seem like, wow, that's such an accomplishment. But in a way, the reason why I named it Jumping Out of the Mainstream is because when you get... <laughs> kind of entrenched in a community, which we have gotten entrenched here in many ways. I mean, this is our home and we know a lot of people here and so forth. It's hard to do something different. And I just felt like when we made this decision to do this, it was like the, the proverbial salmon swimming upstream. You know, it was, it was hard work to disentangle ourselves for a year to go do this. And yet, we were at a place prior to that, my, my husband and I, we always thought that we would raise our kids overseas. We completely expected to do that. And, you know, my oldest two are 21 months apart. So they came pretty quickly. And um, before we knew it, we were sort of in the throes of just the hecticness of having young kids. And, 
you know, we had to make sure we were making enough money to feed them and all, you know, pay our bills, etc. And it's almost like the time passed before we realized, wow, we had this dream to raise our kids overseas and we didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Now, fact is, we did have all these international students and others that were that we were interacting with. So in a way, instead of going there, they came here and our kids got the exposure and, you know, that was all well and good. But somewhere, I think it was when my oldest son was like in seventh grade, we looked at each other and we said, oh my gosh, are we going to lose this dream? And we said, no. We were actually like thinking, okay, at that point in time, we were kind of considering about adding on to our house. And then we realized we couldn't afford to do something overseas and do that. And so we chose to, you know, take the kids overseas for a year. And honestly, we wish it could have been longer, but because of my, my husband took a sabbatical, I kind of, I could keep my job, but I just had to sort of reframe it. I did, you know, work virtually and, and a few other things. Uh, Anyway, you know, we just decided to go for it. And it was a good, hard, awesome year. Um, Our oldest at the time, by the time we finally were able to do this, he was a freshman in high school, 14 years old. Then we had a daughter who was in seventh grade. And our youngest son was in fourth grade. And because my husband's an educator, we realized we could do quite a bit of homeschooling, um, which we had not done. We're not homeschoolers. Our kids have gone through the public school system. Mm-hmm. But, but um, we did that uh, to a large extent. But all of our kids um, got into Chinese schools as well. And in all of their cases, they were the very first Weigelrin, I didn't pronounce that right, Weigelrin um, foreigners to be in their schools. And their, the purpose was not to learn everything in Chinese. It was to be exposed to the language and Chinese people. And it, there was a lot of success, but there was also not success. And I talk about that in the book, what that was like. But in the end, it was a very pivotal thing for our family. And I think, you know, we, we often reference back to that time. My 14 year old was, if someone says, what was the most difficult thing about that whole year? It was the 14 year old son. He went into quite a stretch of depression, but it's been a reference point for him in some amazing ways since then. I think I may have mentioned that my oldest son and his, uh, his wife are living in Ireland. So, you know, they're not in China, but they're, but interestingly enough, they met in Chinese class. Oh, she's, funny. she's actually not Chinese, but she's half Irish and half Japanese, definitely Asian looking right. in appearance and everything. Um, but anyway, you know, uh, that year was, that year was a real, year of growth for us as a family. And one really amazing thing that happened was our kids, there were times when we, especially when we were traveling, 
Yeah, even if it was just a little trip up to Shanghai, we lived in a city named Ningbo, which is about two hours south of Shanghai. So we'd sometimes go up to Shanghai on the weekends and stuff. And even if we were traveling a short distance, but for the longer trips as well, the kids sometimes would just be so difficult. Like they'd get, you know, they get on each other and everything. And I remember a couple of times looking at my husband going, oh my gosh, this is just horrible. You know, we're living our nightmare. And <laughs> why can't they just get along and all this other stuff? But when we got back to the States, I have to say, I cannot think of a time that they've had arguments since then. I mean, they might, you know, rag on each other a little bit like siblings do, but they are so tight, the, the three of them, in a good way, you know, yeah. in a very healthy way. So I think it was really beneficial, you know, they shared that common experience. And, yeah, like yeah, a bonding so. experience for them. Right, right. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Anyway, that's what the book is it. about. And I, you know, it's not just about our family, though. I try to give some real insights into the culture. And we did also travel to um, Taiwan, well, of course, Hong Kong, which is part of China, but um, Taiwan, uh, Taiwan and the Philippines and Japan during that time. So I also so cool. experience. Yeah, that's yeah. a once in a lifetime experience. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Okay, so let's end with a tip to encourage women who are in the arena fighting for the life that they want. Mm, good question. I would say beware of what voices are going around in your head. And it's up to you to take captive of the captive those voices and change the narrative. If nobody's going to do it for you, it's your you have the the agency to do that. Yes, yeah. so powerful. Um, yeah. Don't believe every thought you think. I think that's just yeah. important and it's not taught young enough. <laughs> right. 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 So Caroline, how can I connect with you? Okay. Well, so my website is yourglobalfamily.com. Okay. And I usually use that. I reference it as one word, you know, with capitals for your global and family, yourglobalfamily.com. I put out a weekly blog post, and if you sign up, I do do a weekly um, newsletter, uh, just some insights and thoughts and so forth related to this. And I'm on Facebook. I'm mostly doing stuff under my name, but I do, if you do search for your global family on Facebook, you will see uh, a page that you can go like, and I'm you know, I will say, because last year was so tough, I really, I've fallen behind on a lot of that stuff. But I'm, like I said, I'm starting to get back on my feet and going to be, you know, much more active there coming up here soon. And uh, then I also have an Instagram account, again, your, at Your Global Family. So, um, and I do have a Pinterest, again, that's another area that I got to work on a little bit. But uh, those are the areas right now, I've got I, I'm excited about something I'm working on. Can I just share that? This, yeah. That again? So in 2019, I wrote a book <laughs> that is not published yet. Uh, it's called Don't Travel Scared. It was going to be something that I was going to get out in the first quarter or so, maybe first half of 2020. 
And then 2020 came down and totally rocked us all. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what are we going to do about travel? I've been really inspired by the people at Nomadic Mat. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. them, but great, great uh, website, nomadicmat.com. And there's also a group called the Nomadic Network that's connected with that. And they're all about travel. And I was talking with um, one of the gals who's, who's one of the primary people connected with that. And she, I said, well, what did you do? She said, you know, a lot of travel bloggers, they, when the pandemic hit, they switched to other things like lifestyle blogging and this and that. She said, but we just decided to stay in our lane because travel will, is happening now, but it will happen again. And it will someday be completely normal, like it was before, you know, maybe a few extra precautions, of course. But so, so anyway, I have gotten some new wind in my sails for that book. And I'm working on, you know, uh, I I want it to be a a book with like evergreen content. In other words, it's not going to be all about how to deal with coronavirus. Okay. But not at all. But, um, you know, it may have some insights on health issues that wouldn't have been there two years ago. But my goal is to get that out this year and take advantage of this pent up desire that is there for travel. And that, that book really is for people that are not necessarily the cutting edge, you know, nomadic travel nomads and so forth, um, but people who just have some reservations uh, dealing with fears as they think about traveling, especially abroad. So yeah. So good. It's, kind of a, it's an interact, interactive kind of workbook-ish kind of approach. Yeah. I love that. I can't wait for it to come out. Book some years. Listen to what Caroline was saying. Even if you get derailed or your plan doesn't go or things don't go as planned, stick with it. It is Mm. not too late. I love that. Yes, not too late. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Caroline. You've been a total badass and I've enjoyed hearing your story. (laughs) Thank you, Marie. I have really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for taking interest. Appreciate it. And with that, we'll end our show. To all the badass women out there staying in the arena, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, own it and get after it. Now that you've listened to this episode of Ordinary to Badass, we want to hear from you. Go to our website, ordinarytobadass.com slash podcast and submit your own experience on how you took your life from ordinary to badass and get the chance to be on a future spotlight episode of the show. That's ordinarytobadass.com forward slash podcast. While you're waiting for the next episode of the show, wipe off the sweat, dust off the dirt and get back in the arena.